Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When did you get back to LA? Because were you in Oregon for a little bit? Yeah, I was. I was up in Oregon um, for, God, like two and a half months. Uh, I got back on Saturday. You got beach house up there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, and, and we we played at, uh, on Seth Meyers, me and some friends. We were all in different locations. But I got to film myself in the backyard of the Oregon house and have the ocean behind me. It was pretty nice. Wow. So you're, that's actually you like right next to it. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 pretty amazing. It's a very um, interesting part of the country, uh, and and I like it. I, I like it a lot. But yeah, we were, we my wife and I were up there for for quite a bit of time. And the thing is, all my musical equipment is down in Los Angeles. And kind of like once a record comes out, I then sort of start getting that itch to play again and, and work on new stuff and, and things like that. So it's good for me to be back here now. Have you still got the studio in LA? as well yeah 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 exactly that's where i am right now the studio i share with uh, chris thompson my bandmate in vampire weekend cnc cnc music factory how how often are you kind of down there every day then now at the moment that you're back yeah yeah definitely i mean it's like it's a mess right now i'll be honest <laughs> just because like you know i all the gear is kind of strewn about and, and not i find that you know it's always good when I finish a project to just clean up and organize and, and, and start over kind of, it's, it's a little bit like picking up the pieces or whatever <laughs> after a breakup. It's, I mean, I guess it's kind of a weird metaphor for when you put a record out, but it's like once that era is done, um, it's good to just kind of like clean up and reorganize and, and just get everything in, in shape. So I, I, you know, I got back on Saturday and I've been doing like these little radio sessions and stuff, but I do just need to basically clean for two days. That's that's going to be on the docket uh, the next two days, I think. I guess a messy studio kind of indicates a productive one as well. Though. Exactly. If you're just like in the zone, um, you're not necessarily thinking about about keeping things clean. That's a, that's a sign of productivity. I I, I mean, this is uh, the studio was um mario c the beastie boys producer uh it was his studio before chris and i took it over um about three years ago and uh i got to meet mario c when i looked at the place he was so so nice and um there's the famous line in intergalactic by the beastie boys where mike d says mario c likes to keep it clean and i'm sure for his entire life he's like always been asked that you know such a great song from you know whatever like 25 years ago and i i was a huge beastie boys fan growing up i i had never met mario c before and i was like listen i i know you 
always get asked about this, but when, when they say Mario C likes to keep it clean, is it like you like your audio mixes clean? You like the, the sound to be like clean, not too distorted? Or is it like, you know, the studio is really, really messy from working on sessions and you want the guys to clean it up? And he said, well, it was both, <laughs> which I just, <laughs> I loved. But so I, I kind of, I feel like I'm in a way tapping into the tradition of Mario C likes to keep it clean. Mario C would not like the state that this room is in right now. I'll, I'll put it that way. <laughs> I guess it's good to have that free space. Was like it was it quite a different thing when you were over in London doing stuff and you're in someone else's studio? Was the atmosphere quite different when it's not your home? Oh yeah, that's it's super different. I mean, my my setup would would have been I had a very very modest setup at my my place in London at home, um, which um, I guess what I what I say is that, that my setup in when I lived in London is that. It was in my actual home where I slept was where the studio was. And it was just a one room in, you know, our flat. My wife's a writer and she would be, she writes historical romance and it would be very weird if I was working on like electronic music down, down the hall while she was trying to imagine something happening in 1800s England. So <laughs> I, I had a very, very modest setup in the house and then I would go to studios and, you know, do like two weeks or whatever when I made records in the past. I, I made the my second solo record in Brixton and um at fuck what's the name of that I the name is just escaping me God I'm I can't believe I can't remember where I, the name of that studio in Brixton I used to but um but yeah it just you would I would go there work then come home but it would be a temporary space whereas having my own dedicated full-time studio this record Dead Hand Control was the first time I I had that opportunity and like I do think that the record is is better for it. I think that the record sounds like by far the best of of my three solo records, and I think that comes from just yeah, like like building out a studio and and all that entails. Is that a time thing as well? When you don't kind of have that ticking clock going on, you can spend as long as you like in there. Yeah, absolutely. And and spending, you know, it took me a year and a half to make this record, and um, that's like the longest it's ever taken me to make a record. Yeah, there's there's. There's no pressure. There's no nothing. You can kind of just work at your own pace when you have your own full-time studio. So yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was great. When you're doing that as well, and you've kind of got this unlimited time, do you have to put certain structures in self in place for yourself so that you ensure that you don't you know overcook it and you still kind of maintain the spark? No, it's not really like that for me when I make my solo records. It's more um and and you know I I was plenty busy with Vampire Weekend over the course of making this record where, you know, we were putting the live band together for Father of the Bride and, and going on tour. And I just knew I really did want to put my record out in January of 2021 because I thought that, you know, the band would be touring until the end of 2020 and that it would be kind of like my first time. And I, I do find that, like, it's good to have these sort of, like, overall broad time goals because, you know, I wanted... And again, obviously this has been completely <laughs> thrown out the window, but, you know, I end up having a limited amount of time where I can tour and, and play the songs and travel with the music. And I want to give the album as much of a chance in life as I possibly can. So I, I knew, you know, from when I started working in the summer of 2018, I knew giving myself 18 months that's like longer than I've ever spent ever working on a record. It'll like be super good for me and, and it'll probably end up coming out, you know, in January of 2021, give it a year between when I finish it and when it comes out. And then I would be able to tour it as much as possible because, you know, the, there's obviously going to be a next Vampire Weekend record and that's going to be a huge part of my life. So I just, I, I, I'm very good at deadlines and also like, I just I find the process of working on music to be so like joyful and and just like beautiful and fun. I I do feel like you know when I'm inspired by something I can work for twelve hours a day and it's like I love every moment of it. You know I love solving problems, figuring out why something doesn't sound right, how to get it over the finish line. So it's not um it, there there's no there there isn't a risk of overcooking it because I did have a deadline in mind and I, and I was able to hit it and you know I would be home for two weeks and I would record and then I'd go on tour and I would listen to what I worked on for the two weeks and that would that helps give you a little bit of perspective and while touring and listening and thinking about the record I would know you know exactly what I wanted to try and accomplish the next time I came home so it's it's not it's it's uh it's a good balance I I do feel I mean I I, I keep saying it to CT like you know when we hang out but like if you had told me when I was 
16 years old that I would have this dedicated space with all this incredible equipment that I can just go to and use whenever I want. I, I would have, I wouldn't have believed it because it's just so much fun. So, so I don't know. I, I, I do feel like I have this good balance and, and really good situation and it gets me very excited for, you know, whatever the next steps are and whatever the next thing I'm going to work on is. What you were saying there as well, like how much being on tour kind of helped to get that perspective because you would come back after a couple of weeks and you, the time would have passed and you'd have a slightly different view on it. Were you on tour when you stopped off at the studio in London, Damon's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, um, I, I did work on the, the two most important days of working on this record were at Damon Albarn's studio, 13 studios in, in West London. And basically uh, I work with a guy by the name of John Foyle on all my solo music. He co-produced the second record, Man of the World, and he's done, you know, he always records my vocals and does the first comp and stuff like that. And I had forgotten that he had moved studios, but we had made plans to record in, in May of 2019 because I was going to the UK with Vampire Weekend. We were going to be playing the Radio One big weekend, and I had a couple days I, I that I was going to stay behind and go to London and um, work with him and, you know, stay with friends that uh, live in Notting Hill. I don't know. I, I just... I got to the studio and John was like, hey, how's it going? And and, and he was like, hey, um, you know, Damon's on tour with The Good, The Bad and The Queen. Uh, you can use his, we can use his studio for the next two days. And it was over uh, the May bank holiday. So it was a Sunday and a Monday and the entire building was empty. And it just me, John and all of Damon's shit. I, I got to use a bunch of his synths. You know, I recorded almost all the vocals of the record there. Um, I recorded the piano there. And it just was the the my two favorite days of all time of ever working on music because it was, you know, this musician who I absolutely love, who's made so many records that are so important to me and, and getting to play all his stuff. It just, uh, yeah, it was a dream. Is it a different thing recording vocals when you're on tour like that? Because obviously if you're doing like backing vocals live every night and then you go into the studio to kind of work on that does it impact it in any way or the approach to it you know i don't know it's interesting you you bring it up because i'm you know i'm I'm doing these like little radio sessions and i came back from you know i came back from oregon and i i started like singing on monday and wow have i not been singing like i just (laughs) (laughs) I, i like i you know we did this one tv thing and otherwise i haven't sang any of these songs which is so wild to me but so I, I, I've gotten back into singing shape in the last two days of just like practicing and, and working on it. But um, uh, yeah, it, it did feel I, I did feel comfortable in like the like physicality of singing because uh, we were touring. And yeah, like your my musical muscles or whatever would have been in use every night playing shows. So maybe there is something to it. I mean, I, I've done a bunch of interviews where I've talked about how. You know, this is the first record where I really feel like my voice sounds good. Like like my singing voice sounds good, which can be kind of a silly thing to say. But um, I, I did really think about where to sing in my register and like to try and get my voice sounding as deep as possible. And I think there might be something to recording all the vocals while I was still on tour with Vampire Weekend. Because yeah, I recorded all the vocals with John. Um, so a bunch of them we did in May and then maybe two we did in November when I was during the Vampire Weekend. Father the Bride European tour and uh, yeah I don't know it was uh, there 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 might be something to that that's a that's a good question I hadn't thought of it that, that way it's interesting as well does that impact the lyrics when you're kind of more confident and assured in your vocal performance does it impact what you're trying to convey uh no I I think that the lyrics would have been you know because I, I would work on them periodically and think about them for a long time and I and I don't. Uh, I mean, it it becomes hard to isolate how something influences you and how something in your life uh, manifests itself in your recordings. But I I don't think that there was necessarily that much of an influence on the lyrics, the fact that I was like traveling and touring because I was just, yeah, the album is has like a loose concept. And I was thinking about those concepts. And I think it would have been the same uh, regardless of the kind of like situation under which the vocals are recorded. Are those concepts something you have before you begin writing the songs? Or are they something that emerge organically once you've started that process? It's with this record, it really was the the first thing. And um, I I like to work in a way 
I, I come up with songs in, in four different ways. I, I've kind of realized over the years in terms of starting songs. I'll start it on a piano. I'll start it on a guitar. I'll start it by making a beat on the computer. And then the last one is I'll start it with a song title. And and sometimes a song title will just pop in my head. And, and I like I love it as an exercise. So, um, you know, the song Endless Me, Endlessly, that just like that turn of phrase popped into my head. And I thought, okay, that there's something there. There's something interesting. What does a song called Endless Me, Endlessly sound like? That That's kind of like how that song began. And, and on this record, half of the songs started that way. So, you know, Dead Hand Control, Endless Me, Endlessly, Dead Hand, and Cast Noir all were song titles before they were songs. Um, and, and the themes and ideas of this record is basically, I would have read about the context of Dead Hand Control, the concept of Dead Hand Control, shortly after my last record came out, which is called Man of the World. It's I read it in the in the context of um, the writer Edward Albee, who died, and in his will, he said, I want all my unfinished work to be destroyed. The idea of giving someone your stuff and then trying to control them is called Dead Hand Control, and it's this weird, like, nebulous area of the law where it's very, very difficult to enforce. And, um, you know, if the the ex- executors of Edward Albee's will decided they wanted to publish his works, they probably would be able to do it, even if the will expressly says not to. Um, another example of dead hand control to go back to the Beastie Boys is when MCA died. He said in his will he didn't want any Beastie Boys songs to be in commercials. And the idea of an artist trying to control what happens to their work after they die, I just found so, so fascinating. Spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of control, the illusion of control, and its relationship to what I do, which is make music. And I kind of came down on this idea or this issue thinking that the thing that I can control is the recording. The thing that I control is what the album sounds like, what the album looks like. And then once I put it out into the world, I no longer control it. It's no longer um, my own. I, I don't have that control. And to my mind, it's absolutely worth sacrificing the control over recording to have a song out in the world and, you know, hopefully connect with other people. Um, but so that that was kind of what I was thinking about the nature of control. And then also... Um, I was a studio a student of um, Soviet history. My, my major in college was um, Russian regional studies, and I was familiar with this rumored nuclear missile system called Dead Hand. Basically, it's uh, a rumored automated system where if it detected a nuclear attack in the Soviet Union, it would automatically nuke America. And it's also called perimeter sometimes. It's, the, its existence has never been, you know, officially confirmed by the Soviet Union or, or now Russia, but it's it's on this planet to this day. And so I was also thinking about what I can control in terms of world events. Like I, as a single individual person, have no control over uh, the world's nuclear arsenal. And, and thinking about that made me think about what I can control in the world and it's how I treat the people in my life or how I treat my community and um, showing up for them. So kind of thinking about an artist's control or lack thereof and an individual's control and lack thereof, those were the concepts of the album. And I did think about them for a solid year before I started recording it. So I, you know, I would have read about this in the summer of 2017, I would have said, okay, this is what I want to call my next record. And then I would have thought about it for a year before I actually started actively working on it. So it was like a good two and a half years where you, these kind of ideas are permeating around your head total and you're kind of exploring them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like two and a half years from the arriving at the concept and sort of finishing the album. How does that impact your wider life? Like kind of thinking about those things so much, does it change your behavior in any way outside of music? That's a very good question. Uh, you know, before I arrived at this concept, I would try and show up for the people in my life. And, and I don't necessarily think that anything truly fundamentally changed in, in my personal life as a result of this because the kind of like concepts and, and tenets of the record I, I tried to live by before, um, you know, making the record even. It's interesting because the theme of selflessness or the kind of motif of it is something else that permeates throughout the songs. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I'll say that, yeah, I'm, I'm not religious, uh, but I do 
I, I was thinking a lot about, you know, the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. I do, obviously, there's like quite a bit of wisdom in that. There's a reason why there's a lot of appeal. I, I, I was thinking about the golden rule a little bit, and which is a little, it was, it's different from selflessness, but I also... um was thinking about the serenity prayer, which is, you know, used in AA and other places by Reinhold Niebuhr, but the, like, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. And and that also is basically the, the main concept of the record, I would say. Do you, although we're saying, you know, it's been two and a half years that you've been really exploring these things, do you think that they were maybe subconsciously kind of floating around before then, a little bit prior? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, the last five years of American life were a big part of it. And I guess I felt like my second record was a bit too topical and a bit too much about Brexit and Trump. And I wanted something more broader, universal and, and generalized. Um, but these would have been things that I would have been thinking about. Even before, yeah, before, you know, summer 2017, I think that nuclear anxiety is something that I didn't have to worry about for the first 30 years of my life. Now, if I should have worried about that is a different question, because it is an incredibly scary idea that there are these devices on the planet that can finish life on Earth as we know it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I would be thinking about such abject cruelty on a national scale makes me want to be a better person as an American. That's definitely uh, part of it. Why weren't you worrying about nuclear, the, the kind of nuclear threat for the first eight years of your life out of interest? I think because uh, someone profoundly unfit came in, you know, had control of the nuclear arsenal, yeah. had control of the United States nuclear arsenal. It's incredibly scary. And I'm I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the doomsday clock, but I remember after the 2016 election, they moved the doomsday clock closest to midnight that it had ever been in my lifetime. And so, yeah, there's a finite amount of time you can devote to your anxieties and your fears and the things that you you worry about. But someone so profoundly unfit having the nuclear codes, um, to my knowledge, he must have been the, the most unfit in the history of the nuclear age to have it and you know we got through his term but it's incredibly scary stuff yeah it's a wake-up call for sure definitely i don't know do you think the do you think the end of the world is a conceivable possibility though in our lifetimes do you think it could actually happen or is it because it's in no one's it's in no one's best interest is it yes I, i absolutely think it's possible um there's there's something something comforting about the fact that i think everybody at, at any point in history, it would have been possible the end of life. And, and those fears go back. Um, you know, it's like it's wrapped up in, in biblical thought, you know, the eschatology or like uh, apocalyptic thinking. And I do think it's, you know, th- there's so many examples of like nuclear mishaps. I mean, you know, I love the TV show about Chernobyl last year or two years ago now. I love the book Midnight in Chernobyl. I read that while I was working on this record. But, you know, there's there was this incident I just read about, you know, uh, in December I was going on a reading spree and a plane carrying a nuke um, like the nuke fell off the plane or the plane crashed. I, don't, I can't remember which one in the 1960s in North Carolina and there were four fail safes on the nuke and three of them were broken, and if Ooh. the last one had been broken, the nuke would have gone off, and you know there would have been nuclear fallout over Washington D.C. And you know who knows what if that had happened then would would America have known it was their own plan? Would they have thought maybe it was a Soviet attack? What happens there? In in a way, it's like the fact that there is human life in society this deep into the nuclear age is is a small miracle in a way. Yeah, I think it almost highlights as well, it's not actually the bombs themselves that are scary, but the human error, or the potential for human error that kind of surrounds them. I mean, you mentioned Chernobyl there as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the No, that's the, the, that's the scariest part. It's interesting that this new record is a little bit, like you were saying, kind of less, I think it was direct the freeze, kind of a little bit less moody than the, the one following it, which kind of came right after 
Trump and Brexit and all of these things. Is that you adjusting to these things kind of being in a world or are you kind of moving past it and trying to find hope in a different way or what's kind of I would say latter. Yeah, I yeah. wanted I wanted this record to be I, I guess I like to think of records having an emotion that that can be the like a helpful tool for me. Um and and I think that the Man of the World was a record largely about anxiety and fear. And I wanted this record to be about romance. I wanted this to be my romantic record. And so um, I, I did want to make something that was hopeful, uh, ultimately, and tried to find, you know, silver linings in scary situations and, and kind of going back to that idea of being good to the people in your life. That's a beautiful thing if you can do that. And yeah, so, so that, that was, it, it wasn't necessarily moving past it. It was more just like recognizing the scariness of it, but then trying to find hope in spite of it. Yeah, you can't live a life in fear. Yeah. It's interesting what you were saying there as well about this one, you wanting this to be your romantic record. Can you kind of see the romantic songwriter of your music in your daily life? Can you see that side of you kind of shining through there too? That's, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I don't think that it, it um, necessarily changes the romance in my life, what I'm working on. I, I don't know. I, I find that, like, when I make records, it's this very contained thing. It's like I, I show up at the studio, I think about what I want to accomplish, then I go home and hang out with my wife. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's, that's a very good question and, and like, a hard one for me to answer how it shows up in my life. But I, I don't necessarily think that it would make me... <laughs> <laughs> any more romantic as a husband or whatever because I was working on a romantic song because the truth is making music in and of itself making an album it's not a romantic thing I'm sitting in front of a computer playing instruments and like staring at a computer screen and pushing around transients and shit like that and so so it's not you you want the end result to be something romantic but the the actual like the process the like craft is not romantic so Overall, maybe you want to make a recording that inspires romance or sounds like sounds romantic, but in terms of what I'm feeling for 99% of the time I'm working on a record, it's not a sense of romance. I don't like uh, feel a profound passion toward my computer as I'm working on music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting is what you were speaking earlier about how you studied Russian and was it Eurasian studies? Yeah, you, it was like it was a Russian regional studies. Russian so regional it's, studies. it's yeah, that was the name of my major. So it would be like I would take anthropology classes and ethnomusicology. Then I would also take language and and history and and literature. And um, yeah, that that was the major. And math was your minor. Yeah, yeah, and then I minored in math. Can what were we saying there about you know this thing kind of being this the recording process not being a particular romantic thing and it being quite difficult sometimes. Do you ever take things, can you like take a mathematical approach to it, if you understand what I mean? In terms of like structuring it, can you kind of break it down and look at it from a technical standpoint in any way? Yeah, definitely. And there is like minoring in math and having a solidly mathematical way of approaching things is very helpful in music, I find. Um, and it can be as simple as just like BPM and you know what, what the tempo of a song, how it'll flow in, like th that kind of stuff. And thinking about keys, I don't know. It's all there. Obviously, there's numbers everywhere. That's the thing. I guess it does. It, it does help. I, I'm I'm kind of at a loss for words, specifically how. But you know, yeah, kind of like what I was saying earlier. It's not like there was like roadblocks. Or this was a tremendously difficult record to make. It was like kind of like considered, planned out, and. I I don't think there's a single day that I spent in the studio where I was like, oh fuck, this I I can't get this right. I need to go home. What an awful awful day. They were all like good days and it was like joyful and fun. Um, I, I will say, okay, I do spend a lot of time thinking about song tempos and the overall flow of things. And my first record had a very very narrow range of beats per minute, which uh, I think the slowest song is 120 BPM and the fastest is 128 BPM. And I was thinking about it in the context of like house music and DJing and kind of consistent mixes and things like that. Um, 
And this record, I I did want to like have songs that could be like approaching a ballad tempo, not necessarily like a full blown ballad, but having like a wide range of BPMs. And I, I was thinking about like the first two songs are at like 104 BPMs, which is not a BPM, but like it, that's not a very fast tempo. But I wanted it to be like charging and, and aggressive and and feel like heavy um and and then i just yeah i was thinking about the kind of like range i wanted to to have there be and i wanted there to be um songs more in that like 120 to 130 sweet range um of like house music and 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 then you know i was like okay there should be like some slower songs one should be around 95 one should be around 88 and like that's where my like mathematical brain definitely shows up on my records is because I do spend a lot of time thinking about the flow and thinking about the the journey and the adventure that an album is. And I find tempo always plays a big part in that, whether I'm listening to a record or when I'm making a record. If you adjust the tempo of a song slightly, say by like a few beats per minute, do you notice that have a big impact upon it? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah oh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. It just the, the groove, it's all it's all there the groove is it's so important so no you have to find what what place feels right for for a song definitely did you find yourself tweaking them throughout the process or does that kind of stop at a certain point the no that stops yeah. fairly early uh, that stops fairly early where i'll just like i'll i'll figure that out very early on in making a track and um when it feels right i don't look back because you know then you know, there are all kinds of things you can do in the computer where you speed and slow things up, but you do want to mostly record at the tempo of the song. When you then slot that song, once it's firmed up into the kind of trajectory of the record as a whole, can that impact or affect your perception on the kind of momentum and speed of it and how it flows and works? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, it's it's all all pre, you know, pre-considered, whereas like, yeah, the first two songs, I wanted them to flow together. I wanted them to be 140 104 the second the third song i wanted it to be a more like up-tempo rock song so that's at 130 and then i wanted to drop down slightly i like songs that flow right into each other so the track one flows right into track two track three flows right into track four which is at 122 so it just slows down a little bit and i think of it as kind of like calming being a bit calm after a kind of chaotic song ending and then yeah it's just all I'm always thinking of flow. I'm always thinking of how the songs run into each other. And that's like when I'm thinking about a record, you know, the, the starting point of this record, aside from the, the concepts was I wanted it to have the least number of songs of any of my albums, but also be my longest album. And so, you know, there's two nine and a half minute songs on this record as a result. Um, it's all, yeah, <laughs> I, I realize I'm sounding like uh, I'm getting a little bit like obsessive about it. <laughs> the math and now now that i'm thinking about it out loud it's not no one's ever asked me a question like this before but it's 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 all in there yeah it's all in there i guess it is quite a strategic thing like the way you place the nine minute uh songs at the end of each side of the record like if you would think that you're gonna put a nine minute song in amongst a bunch of other three minutes you would think it would be a little bit of an obstruction but as a result of kind of using it as a way to structure the record it doesn't do that instead it kind of just feeds into the flow completely yeah definitely and, and I, was, I was thinking about it as sides of a record and i wanted there to be symmetries so track four and track eight are the you know nine plus ones and uh if you if it flows together if it works that's a beautiful thing i like records that flow together <laughs> at what point do they start to emerge as a nine minute song is that something that kind of starts so small and just naturally elongates or are you kind of merging some ideas together I guess it it depends on the two songs. So the story of Dead Hand, which is the first long one, which is track four in nine and a half minutes. I went to a show in Los Angeles at the Forum. I saw Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds in the fall of 2018. And um, I'm a huge fan. I had like seen him before, but I'd become a much bigger fan of his before this show. And since this you know previous time, I would have seen him like when we played the same festival. But basically... There's a song on the record Push the Sky Away called Jubilee Street that I love. The recording's great, but live it's just a completely different beast. It's just so, so powerful and big. And it's really the, the kind of back half of the song just explodes in a way that it doesn't on the record. 
I watched this song and just had this intense physical reaction where like, you know, the, the hair on the back of my neck went up the, like I would get goosebumps on my arm and then my ears started burning, which is like such an intense physical reaction just of how incredible the performance was. And I was like, fuck, this is incredible. And I, then the next day came here to the studio and would have thought, I want to try and make my version of that for the song Dead Hand. So I would have had this idea for a song title. I would have maybe had like the chord progression. And I said, I just want to make this song that explodes in the back half and can be this kind of like massive thing. So I made it, yeah, it's like a, the production's pretty much like straightforward techno. Um, the song before it on the record's a rock song. And I just wanted it to have this kind of massive techno back half. And and so I would have, you know, written the song, had the like all the chords, had the first half, which is, you know, a vocals, verse, you know, verse chorus, post chorus type song. You know, maybe a couple days later had a night in the studio where I just started like playing with synths and having fun with that. And I would have arrived at, yeah, like nine nine and a half minutes, kind of like organically, like it just would have felt right to me. And and at that point I would have let it go with OMW. I had made, I had made dead hand already. And I was thinking about symmetry. I was like, all right, I, I, I got to make another one that gets to like nine minutes. And I, when I think about like romantic closers or really romantic songs, I think of songs like, uh, Peter Gabriel in your eyes or, uh, the, the with giant. And those two songs, what they have in common beyond just being incredible pieces of music is they have kind of like wordless singing at the end. And I, I just knew I wanted to have uh, a similar type of ending to that song. That song, you know, was one that I started writing with Ezra, my vampire weekend bandmate in 2011. And I always wanted to put it on a record. I, I just, I felt like now was the time. And as was very cool about that. And this is the first time I've put a song on one of my solo records that I didn't 100% write. And um, yeah, just like figuring out a way to to make that journey worthwhile, to make it like merit a really long run time. And, you know, the girls who sang on the record, Greta Morgan and Buzzy Lee, they like, they, they sang the same melody. And I was thinking about like, I was trying to think of their voices and my voice like, um, like synthesizers on Dead Hand in a way. So I, put all these like kind of like production techniques to make the voices like morph and change and um eventually all come together at the end yeah that's that's how that one was so that that one was i i knew i wanted something that was kind of a similar runtime to dead hand and that's that's how i got there do you think that song would have been as effective had it crop popped up on either of the earlier records or why did it have to be this record why did this record kind of feel right for it in that way um, I think kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where I just always thought it was so romantic. And the chorus line Ezra wrote, um, I just thought there was like an innate romance to it and that it was kind of ballady. And uh, I didn't really feel like ballads were right for my first two records. So I, um, there was no question that this was the time to put that song on an album. It's a nice optimistic closer as well. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Sort of open-ended too, though. Do you kind of, do your records need to have a complete sense of closure to them or are you kind of happy to leave it a little bit open and kind of outward looking i think i think the latter i think it's it's nice to have them be a little bit outward looking because you know there'll be another one in a couple of years <laughs> or whatever it's it's like all um all part of a journey and so yeah it's like the, the next chapter i do i i do like it to be a little bit i mean there is a sense of closure there's like a really long last satisfying chord it's like pretty like straightforward conclusion to that song but having it feel like a little bit open-ended i think that's nice i think there's something nice to that yeah it's kind of like walking off into the sunset it definitely feels like the end but at the same time you know there's something else to come yeah yeah i like that was the nick cave performance what also inspired the kind of nod to him on i think it's the song after um yeah yeah there's two that's my little those are the little nick cave (laughs) (laughs) uh no that one i just like i i'm i'm like i'm i'm proud of the lyrics of that song take it from me but i also like i wanted to make 
like a less less referential lyrics in general on this album. And there's there are references to other songs and and books and stuff like that, but I wanted to be a little bit less referential than like my first two records. But it it taps into that idea of yeah, like being there for someone, selflessness. And I just I I like the idea of having a verse of the song just be filled with musical references. So I I did yeah yeah the lyrics are uh. If you want to hear some cave, I can put on Stagger Lee. If you're looking for a rave, we can dance to Set You Free, which is like the entrance rave song. Uh, when you're sick of all the noise, I'll play 433, which is the John Cage silent song, because you can take what you want if you take it from me. I just, yeah, I liked having like a little a little verse that's just purely references to music. There's like a Hot Chip song that does it that I always really liked, um, where it's like just referencing a bunch of different musicians. and I, want to do my own version of that were there a few others that didn't quite make the cut did you have quite a large brainstorm when it came to references you wanted to include no at that point? No. no i just that that one that one i wrote in the car from the north of england to london in may so <laughs> so i just i like it it ends up being you have your your tent poles the the lines that you know are going to be in the song and then there are other ones you're kind of trying to figure out and i just like it just popped into my head you know thinking of things that rhyme with take it from me so like i just I don't know why you so I would have written that, you know, like six months after I recorded Dead Hand or after I saw a Nick Cave play. But it, it just popped into, you know, just thinking about like different references and like I like rhyming cave and rave and, you know, like that one I was very self-satisfied and fucking psyched on when it came to me. And <laughs> just like I would have, yeah, like I would have just like had that stagger Lee and then I would have thought of 433 and then i was like all right like let me look up a bunch of rave songs and find there's has to be one that will rhyme with staggerly and that's like that's how i got to it but i i i would do that again in another song fuck it <laughs> <laughs> you uh you mentioned the vocal production on the final track a few moments ago as well when did the kind of reversal thing that i think first crops up on Endless Me with the vocal kind of reversing and then you do it on a few different sounds as well. When did that first kind of crop up and start to emerge as a motif throughout the record? I that's a very, very specific plug-in. Um which is the like basically on this record I I bought I don't know how much you talk about like tactical stuff on this podcast, but I I, I switched I switched over to Universal Audio stuff, so I got a bunch of um Universal Audio plugins and I have this project I work with uh, with Fort Rameau, Mike, uh, called CYM. We put out our first EP in 2019, and working with him, he's a big fan of this plugin that's like a reverse reverb plugin called AKG BX20. He put it on the song that we made together on my voice called Far Gone, and I just loved how it sounded, and and so it just has so much vibe. And and basically, I, I you know, Mike showed me it, and then I started putting it on 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 this record on um it's definitely on endless me i I, i'm i'm pretty sure it's also on omw but like lars who mixed the record he told me he's never like uh he's never worked with an artist that uses that plugin which i thought was kind of surprising because it's so good but uh yeah just like uh sometimes figuring out a vocal sound can be the like trickiest and hardest part of a song and you like acquire more tools as you go, but I just um yeah I I love how that sounds. I love the like kind of swirling of a reverse reverb, and for like that on a deeper singing voice is a is a nice combo. I think. Yeah, for sure. What you're saying there is all about acquiring more tools as you go. Does that then does it become a little bit harder to find things that feel fresh and exciting for you? It's a very uh, like idiosyncratic kind of effect that you're using. The more. The older you get, the the more like tools you acquire, the the more like control you have over sound, and you know maybe you lose a little bit of the charm of like your earlier work, but you do gain more knowledge and and you like have more ability, and and I do like that, and you know I would love to my my like one of my main New Year's resolutions for 2020 was to start producing other people, so to produce a record or produce a song where I'm not the like lead artist on the song. Then a global pandemic happened and I can't be in a room with anybody else. So that ended up not <laughs> happening last year, but it is something that I want to do. And I, I do feel like I've reached a level with production that I feel like capable of working with other people. So that's definitely something I want to do in the future. It's interesting. There's all the, what you were saying about the charm 
that sometimes comes with an artist's earlier work as a result of not having those tools and kind of exploring. Is that why OMW works so well? Because the spark of that is taken from like 10 years ago, but then you're kind of advancing it advancing it in a way with the kind of new production but it's still got that yeah spark i love it. that I, I love that that's definitely the case with that song where there's like that spark of an older song and then yeah like having the tools to pull it off like that's partially probably why i waited nine years to release it is because i i didn't have maybe the technical know-how to to make you know what it eventually became did you know that in the moment when you were first creating it, that you thought this is going to be something I need to come back to and I can't quite get it to where I feel like it needs to be at this point yet? Um, I think it was more just the like the tone of it. It just didn't feel right in my first two records, which yeah, we, we like talked about. But if I had made it five years ago, would it have been nine minutes long? Probably not, no. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Do you have any other ideas like that kind of sitting in the can that you're intrigued and you maybe want to come back to a little bit further down the line? You know... I don't. I like I went home to my mom's house in like the end of 2019 when we were doing like some vampire weekend touring and I got all my old albums that I made when I was a teenager and I was always very taken by the Radiohead story where Tom York like with the national anthem that was a bass riff that he wrote when he was like 14 years old and and then wow. you know they made it into that incredible song. So I was like all right, let me listen to and I recorded a lot of music when I was a teenager. It's like, let me just listen to everything and maybe there'll be like a little idea that I can take and, and put on like to like a new song. And just like, I listened to everything and there was not a single idea I wanted to pursue. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> it was just like, there's nothing here. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there are like little demos and things that I would like to, that I haven't listened to from, you know, like five or 10 years ago that I probably will go back to at some point, but there's nothing like looming as large as, as OMW for me. Did you still keep those things that you've been working on when you were 14, 16? Oh, I mean, I have the albums. Yeah, definitely. They're like super embarrassing, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're not embarrassing anymore. I used to be like so embarrassed and, and scared of them coming out. Now I don't, now I don't care. I'm like far enough removed, <laughs> you know, that's 20 years ago now. It's crazy. Um, I'm 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 not worried about it getting out, but but I still have those records, yeah, totally. Were you singing on them? Oh yeah, very badly, <laughs> very poorly. What does dropping the songs as like pairs offer you that dropping them just as a single wouldn't? That kind of approach. Yeah, you know, um, my manager John Picard, he it was his idea to to put out two songs at a time, and uh, I think it it gives you a better picture of a record. So the first two that came out were "Endless Me, Endlessly," and "What Do You Say When I'm Not There." And the second drop was the title track and take it from me. And I just, I like it. You know, it's something that Vampire Weekend's done for a long time now. It's like, uh, we did that going back to Modern Vampires. Um, but so I think you do just get a bit more of a picture of what an album is going to sound like. So uh, that was why we did it. But it was fun. Yeah, it's interesting because they're not, it's not like they're B-sides. It's like you're literally, you're kind of just dropping the two songs. Yeah, definitely. I, and I don't... That's kind of one thing I've wondered because, like, I, I, I'm i curious if, like, other people perceive them as B-sides because I definitely didn't. That's kind of one thing that I've been thinking about lately, like, when I think back to, you know, how the songs have come out because they are I, they are kind of like double A-sides. But I don't know. It, it was an interesting, interesting experiment, definitely. When... Do the suits start to enter the frame? <laughs> the suits? Oh, just Because <laughs> uh... you've had a different collection for each record. They kind of seem to be getting progressively more colorful and like Wes anderson -y. yeah yeah i um i just i i love yeah i mean i love people like nick cave and brian ferry who wear suits on stage and i think in general uh i'm ultimately like a big nerd so like to try and dress cool is like makes it a little bit better in terms of presenting the albums and like with these new suits i i like when i went to the store to buy them like i wear this one bright yellow suit that's somewhat insane i tried it on and the woman working at the place like you know you're the first person ever to try that suit on in the store <laughs> and i was like that's really funny and then another guy and you know granted they're doing like salesmanship was like oh my god that's amazing i have to get one and i'm gonna buy one for myself it's like oh, okay all right but but i did love that like this insane bright yellow banana suit uh that had been in the store probably for like six months to a year i was the only person to ever try it on and buy it but um yeah i, I wanted it to feel i just i loved how it looked I, I just i yeah having like a bright suit is fun it relates to the record as well like the kind of brighter production of this one 
in comparison. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to to wrap us up by asking something. I heard it in an interview a few weeks back now, and I asked it to another artist I had on the podcast for the first time, and his answer really fascinated me. So I thought I was going to, I might bring it up once again, and it's that this desire that we have to create things and make music oftentimes is kind of fueled by some kind of a hole in our life, something we're trying to fill and fulfill. Now that you've you're three you know solo records in at this point, have you kind of got more of a sense of what that hole is and what you're trying to fulfill by releasing these albums and what they're kind of doing for you in that way and adding to your life? That's a great question. The hole that I'm filling by making records, they help give me purpose. And uh, I would find like early on when like Vampire Weekend records would come out and we'd go on tour and it would be very, very exciting. I just remember from, you know, the summer of 2007 until December of 2008 for 18 months. That was when the you know first album came out. We got to travel the world. We got to play so many places. We got to meet such incredible people. And it was just such an exciting time in my life. And then I came home and was purposeless and modestly depressed because you know that that kind of excitement you can't like no life has that amount of excitement that consistently i found that i was kind of aimless and unhappy and i i like to work i like to keep myself busy i like to to make things and so i just i started learning how to produce and i find now that those moments when I'm in a studio and I get really, really inspired and I make something that I like, those are some of the happiest moments in my life when I've just like made uh, a song, I'm finishing it up and I can like tell that I love it. And those moments are few and far between. Like, you know, like we talked about, this record was two and a half years in the making. With making those songs and then putting the album out and then having this little artifact, I get to preserve in time that happiness you know, hopefully longer than I'm even alive. Hopefully someone will listen to one of my albums after I've died. And there's that little sense of preservation. And that 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 to me is what, what fills that hole, is that like it makes me incredibly happy. And then there is an artifact of that happiness. That's the beautiful part of it. Kind of comes back to the idea of dead high control as well. Yes, 100%. That's, that's like largely why... That's, I mean, there's a reason why I ended up making a whole record about that, because I, I think about stuff like that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.